to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. We are going to finish this section on the temptation of Christ. There in Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 11, we began this last week. And in this section, we see that Jesus is leaving us an example to follow on how to face and to win over the powerful seduction of sinful temptations that with out question inevitably come in this life. And last week we looked at um, some aspects of thought that this passage reminds us of, and I quickly wanted to run through those with us again this morning. Last week we saw that, number one, there is a spiritual world, and we need to keep this in mind. John 10.10 tells us that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy Jesus came that we may have life and have it abundantly. Now, if we choose to not live in light of this reality that there is a spiritual world, we will most likely, not most likely, we will suffer harm as a result because the truth is sin always leads to death. Secondly, we are involved in a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6.11 says that we need to put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Um, Anything and everything that leads you away from full devotion to the Lord, anything and everything that leads you away from full devotion to the Lord is a scheme of the devil. Anything that's causing you to make movement away from a devotion to Christ. And good things can do that. You might say, well, it's not a sinful thing. If you love your husband or you love your wife more than Christ, that person can become an idol in your life and you worship them instead of Jesus. Anything that causes us to take movement away from devotion to Christ is a scheme of the adversary. Thirdly, our enemy in this spiritual battle is formidable. We see in 1 Peter 5, 8 that we need to be sober of sober spirit and on the alert. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, it says, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And in Jude 9, Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment but said the Lord rebuke you our spiritual enemy is a formidable enemy and so we are not standing in our strength we are standing in Christ and we say the Lord rebuke you I always find it interesting when people try to personally cast Satan out of something when in reality you can't cast Satan out of anything only the spirit of God can in Christ, and that's where we stand, is in him and him alone. Fourthly, the stakes in this spiritual battle are eternal. In Mark eight thirty six, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The, 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 the stakes are eternal, and your soul is, is what is at stake. And if you sell out for temporal pleasure all your life, and you continually just tip your hat to King Jesus all along the way, you might be forfeiting your soul indeed fifthly we saw that the scope of this spiritual battle is universal matthew 24 14 this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world world missions as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come it's a 
universal scope. The gospel will be preached before the ending comes. And so people have been going out in missions all over the world, taking the gospel of King Jesus to the four points of this world. Sixthly, our involvement in this spiritual battle is personal. Matthew 28, 19, and 20, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Each one of us is personally to be engaged in this spiritual battle for the souls of people. It's very personal. The gospel reached you, the spiritual eyes of, of your heart were opened, you repented, and you believed in Christ. You need to be the voice. You need to have the beautiful feet of those who bring good news to someone in this life. We have been given one commission, and that is our marching orders. And its, it's aim, this, this, the tempter's aim, is to keep us so disinterested in spiritual things and ultimately distracted with worldly things so that ultimately we do make little of Christ and of the only great commission that he has given us, his true church. And if we can get sidetracked on so many other little things that don't matter nearly as much, our effectiveness for that one goal is blunted. And Jesus, knowing that we would need an example of how to win against the schemes of the devil, left us an example to follow. Now, again, last week, uh, we, we were able to make it through verse 4 in, this, in, these, uh, in chapter 4, the first four verses. And in that first temptation, we saw how Satan tempted Jesus. We saw that Satan knew that Jesus had been without food, that he had fasted 40 days and nights, and tempted him to demonstrate his sonship with the Father by the use of his divine power to turn stones into bread, which, having done so, would have caused Jesus to sin by showing a lack of trust in God the Father to meet his every need as God the Father had sent him to do the will of him whom he, who, who sent him, which was God the Father. And in great humility, Jesus laid aside divine power and only used it when the Father willed him to use it. And it's in this great lie that our God, here's, here's the lie, you ready? That our God will not supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. And so you go ahead and you reach out and you take care of self. One of the key words today is self-love. I think the word of God says that we need to actually die to ourselves. The most loving thing that we could do for ourselves is to learn how to die to self in order that we can live for him. But one of the key phrases out there today is self-love. If you don't take care of yourself, how can you actually take care of others? And then we get so busy loving ourselves and just taking care of ourselves. And we have great examples of how to do this. I mean, we have some of the best examples ever of how to do this, right? I mean, it's said that LeBron James spends a, like a, over a, several millions of dollars on his own body on an annual basis, along with like the, the likes of like Tom Brady, right? These mega superstars, they invest in their bodies so much. Why? so that their greatness can continue to and be extended. Now, you may say, well, there's nothing wrong with playing sports, etc., etc." No, there's not. Don't get me wrong. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and all these other things can be added unto you, right? Right? So I'm not saying that there aren't things that we can't go out there and, and, and get ourselves vigorously invested in. I'm just saying that self-love is one of the key components of our culture's voice that would lead us away from self-denial taking up our cross daily and following him, that if we seek to be 
to, to, have, to, to live a righteous life in Christ Jesus, that there will be persecution. Sometimes these, the hard teachings and the hard sayings of the word of God are getting blunted by the spirit of the age, and sometimes we find ourselves ebbing very well and, and trafficking very well with the spirit of the age. We just have to be careful to make certain that we're not putting anything above our love and devotion to Christ. That's all I'm trying to say by this. And it was there in verse 4 when Jesus wielded the sword of the Spirit, and he said, and his answer back was, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus knew that his hunger wasn't his greatest need. And isn't that difficult? I mean, he fasted 40 days, 40 nights. The man is hungry. I need, I need me some, some food. But Jesus was keen enough to understand that his greatest need wasn't hunger, wasn't food. We need to have that same ability to recognize that our greatest need isn't the, isn't the self-preservation and the self-care of our physical needs. That the greatest need we have is to feast on and to do the will of the Father. Life, man shall not live, life is not based on the taking care of our physical needs alone. True living, if you want to truly have life, it's on that which comes from, the food that comes from, the mouth of God. And where do we get the food from the mouth of God? Through the word of God. We have access to this 24-7, Every day, every week, every month, every year, we have access to the, the words of God, the food that gives real life, and the tempter tempts us in so many ways as to believe that we can go day and week and month and year without the spiritual nourishment that comes from the word of God and that we can actually experience true life. So the degree to which we struggle getting up and spending time in the word of God and feeding off of the word of God is the same degree to which you need to understand that you have a tempter who has schemes working against you to keep you from said word of God, thinking that perhaps you can just make it on bread alone. Do you really perceive that you're in a world and there's a spiritual reality out there and those forces of, of darkness are working against you? to steal, kill, and destroy. Do you truly believe that? That's what the Word of God says. We need to not just believe it, we need to then learn to act on that, knowing that true life comes only by trusting and obeying, by doing what we know, because that's what Jesus would want us to learn from his first temptation, knowing that we too would be tempted to find true life from meeting our own physical needs in whatever way we might try to find them apart from God himself. Secondly, we see from verse 5 through 7, it's over the issue of sonship. Notice from verse 5 through 7. It says, Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Verse 6, And said to him, If you are the son of God, and here we have the the questioning, if you are the Son of God. Was Jesus the Son of God? Absolutely. 
How does the tempter work? He brings a lot of truth right in there, but he might throw just one word in, a little curveball into our thinking to get us to start questioning. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It was on this second temptation, Charles Spurgeon had a really keen insight. He said, this second temptation is a cunning one. He is persuaded rather to believe too much than too little. He is not now to take care of himself, but recklessly to presume and trust his father's promise beyond its meaning. The aim of the fiery dart was our Lord's sonship, if thou be the Son of God. If the enemy could have hurt our Lord's filial confidence, he would have gained his design. So, question, was, was Satan deterred after his first, let's call it loss? Stones to bread. Nope, I'm going to feast on the words of God. Thank you very much. Was Satan deterred? Wielded the sword of the Spirit, right? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, bam, gotcha. Was Satan deterred? No. And we need, this is one of the things that we need to learn from, from this. And this is one of the things that sometimes um, we struggle with, maybe uh, even more so than just the temptation. It's the grittiness that's needed to continually be a Christian soldier and to fight. When I meet with people in counseling, one of the questions I often ask them is, are you a lover or a fighter? If someone's willing to kick you in the backside and, and take your lunch from you, are you just going to roll over and, and, and yield your neck as well? Or do you have some gumption in you that wants to say, no, -uh, that's my lunch, pal. You ain't getting it without a good fight. Now, in the spiritual realm, we can't fight the same way. We can't just punch at the air. But what we can do is we can feast on the word of God and be prepared to fight. And sometimes we lose that, that, that grittiness that's needed because, why? Because sometimes we yield this, the sword of the Spirit and we use it effectively. And we're like, yeah, we want. And the, the very next second, bam, there it is again. You're like, God, oh, just did that. I just fought that fight. I just won that fight. And here it is again. And it's just railing you over and again. And so you wield the, spirit, the sword of the Spirit again, and bam, you think you've won. And immediately, bam, there it is again. Am I going to have to do this over and over and over all day long until I go to bed? Yes. Sometimes that's what's required when you're truly engaged in spiritual warfare. And you're truly engaged in taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Those thoughts, that lesser voice, that smaller voice that sounds a whole lot like your voice, that's lying, the deceptive voice, and sometimes even uses the word of God and just slightly transitions, maybe a preposition off here or a preposition off there, if you are the son. Sometimes you have to fight every single second of every single day. And this happened to me um, in particular in a few times in my life, but n almost... I find this almost exclusively when people first come to Christ, there's a battle that wages against them that is unrelenting. I experienced it when I first came to faith in Christ. 
and it was the misuse of scripture like this just and it's like it, it was the use of scripture so you said well that scripture sounds true but it's the misuse of scripture that can get us off going sideways and if we don't know how to fight with the sword of the spirit and have the the grit to keep fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting you may find yourselves ultimately just out of gas and yield and, and opening up your neck and saying i'm done and then you just wallow in your sin and and then you feel like crud so when i first got saved the tempter came in and he told me that i couldn't be saved and the reason i couldn't be saved was because at the particular denomination that i was going to i couldn't I couldn't produce signs of true salvation. And so as a result of not being able to demonstrate the signs of true salvation, the thought that came into my head, the misuse of scripture was, which is true, that if there's a blaspheme of, blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, that's an unpardonable sin, right? Is that, isn't that not what the word of God says? And so that thought got into my head. You blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You want to be saved, but you can't. How do you get that thought out of your head? I just got saved. And now I'm thinking I'm not saved. I want to be saved, but I can't get saved. Because when I was an unbeliever, I probably cursed somebody out really good, James. You never did that, I'm sure. But I, I probably did. I cursed somebody out really good, and I probably used Jesus' name somewhere in that phrase. And so I've blasphemed the Spirit somehow. I want to be saved, but I can't be. And I dealt with that mental scourge for a long time and it took the using of the word of God in context that set me free because it's truth that sets you free and one of the things we're going to see here is that beautiful reality of the truth of God's word in context so that when there's a misuse of the word of God that leads you down a path that makes you question your sonship does does our adversary the devil ever want us to question our sonship or daughtership and our identity with the only true living god ever just maybe all the time exactly and it's it's an insidious voice that's perpetually telling us that we're not worthy and that we can never really be used by God because we've failed in the past. He's always having us look in the rearview mirror and, and what we've done in the past and the sins that we've committed maybe yesterday that we said we weren't going to commit again, but we found ourselves committing them again. And because of that, you're worthless, you're no good, you're not really a son, you're not really a daughter of the, of the one true and living God, or you wouldn't do that. And so he uses the same issue. If you're the son of God, it's different than Jesus. Jesus was the divine son of God. But we get adopted into his family, and we become sons and daughters of God. And we get tempted in the same way often. And there's a misuse of scripture that takes place often. It was this passage here in Psalm 91 that the devil was trying to articulate. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone and somehow he takes that passage and he twists it in such a way to say to Jesus oh well, if you would just stand on the pinnacle of the temple and jump off he's going to make application of Psalm 91 in your life and rescue you it sometimes reminds me perhaps of that glorious passage that's often used out of context that says, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
without any consideration of context at all as to what that's even saying. And we just, we, we pull that out and we just kind of smear it over all kinds of things. Listen, and then all of a sudden, you get into a situation and it didn't work. And then you find yourself at, well, why didn't it work? Because the scripture said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's what it says. And now I'm in a place of need where I'm trying to make application of the scripture. And it didn't work. Imagine if Jesus had jumped off the temple. Was God's decreative will from Psalm 91, 11 through 12 to save Jesus from jumping off a high building and hitting the ground? Not at all. The context of Psalm 91 had absolutely nothing to do with jumping off a temple. Satan is the king of eisegesis. Of taking verses in isolation from context and trying to build theology off of it. And then when it doesn't happen, who gets the blame? You do. And the reason why it didn't work is because of you and your lack of faith. And had you just had enough faith when you prayed for this person who was dying of cancer, you would have gotten healed. It's actually your fault. Anytime there's a misuse of Scripture, we have to be like the Bereans. You have to go back. You have to look at that passage in context. That's what saved my soul. I went for a long period of time thinking I couldn't be saved because I'd committed the unpardonable sin. And praise God that I got involved in a church and they started teaching me how to study the word of God in context and that words have meanings. And just because there was a word all the way over here, you know, five books over here, the same word was used over here and it was used like this here. They went to Turkey and over here you're just having a turkey sandwich. Turkey doesn't always mean turkey in the same place. And so you have to be a Berean. You don't check your mind out at the door and just let go and let the Spirit and let God. No, you keep your mind engaged and you read the Word of God and you see what it says. Words have meaning in context and we study and therein, God, it's a glorious thing for God to conceal a matter and it's a glory to man to discover it. Through the digging and searching and, and, and digging and digging and getting into God's Word and eating off of it and, and discovering the beauty of God's Word, there's nothing quite like it. Satan is the master and of the manipulation and the twisting of Scripture, and we can wrongly use said twisting of Scriptures to justify our actions. We will sometimes look at a hundred verses that clearly say something very clearly, but choose to use the one verse that, when taken out of context, soothes our cause and our flesh. It's truly amazing. And such is the power of the deceptive voice of your adversary, the schemes of the devil to steal, kill, and destroy. Be sober-minded. Be on the alert. Jesus was tempted in the same ways as we are yet without sin. And he leaves us a beautiful example, model, of how we too can be successful at winning over the twisting of the words of God. And he yields the, the, the sword of the Spirit of again, again, right here. It is written. Why do you need to spend time in the Word of God on a daily basis as the Bereans searching and researching and studying so that when your time of need, and let me tell you, your time of need is on a daily basis, you can say this right here, you wield the sword of the Spirit, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
And any time you take the truth from God's word and you shine it against the misuse of scripture, you realize that you found a contradiction in scripture. But what's one thing that we know we can't find in the scriptures are contradictions within the scriptures. And so when someone has a pet verse, when taken out of context, and it is belying all these other verses, you know that Satan has probably twisted it and deceived you to make you think that you're, what you're doing is just fine and keep doing it the way you're doing it. Because as long as he can lead you away from the truth of God's word, lead you away from knowing that feed, feasting on this is where life is at, he will use anything to get you there. Let's not get there. Amen, church? And then there's one more temptation. A love of the things of the world. I probably could just stop right there, right? I mean, we could just go like this. We go. Because, man, when they dropped the iPhone 14, man, my. Man, I, I wanted that so bad. I got so discontented with my iPhone 12, like, really quick. All of a sudden, the iPhone 12's camera, you know, come on. The, the, the picture quality that I could get from that iPhone 14 is going to be fire. You, you're looking at me like I'm alone in this. Uh-uh, no. Every single one of you, every single day, are being bombarded with images that make you discontented with what you have and wanting the things of this world and wrongly believing that therein you're going to find happiness wholeness, hope, life, new apparel. Don't you look good when you put on some new apparel? Feel, you feel like a million bucks, right? But if you have to go hawk your car to buy the suits that James sells, you probably shouldn't do it. He has a particular clientele, and they're not in my league. I keep just going to the men's warehouse. A love for the things of this world. Power, position, popularity, prosperity. Seth, give me another P. What you got? Position. I don't know. I already said position. Look at Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, just what do we already know? I mean, we're here in Matthew 4, right? So we've gone from chapter 1, and we're making our way through Matthew. One of the things we already know is that the angel Gabriel showed up, right? And what did he say about this one that was going to be born of the virgin? That he was going to be a king over a kingdom, over the entirety of the world, that would last forever and ever, and its dominion would never end. What do we know from the Old Testament prophets? Same thing, same truth. When John the Baptist came preaching, what did he say? Repent, why? Because the kingdom of heaven's at hand. Who warned you to flee from the wrath of the, the day of the Lord that's coming with that kingdom? The misuse of truth took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. I chuckle because I have fallen prey to that voice too many times. The, the art of and, and the possessor of everything that is Fool's gold is our adversary, the devil. 
Again, what will a man gain if he sells his soul to gain the world? What do you ultimately gain? Was the, was the boating outing really exciting? I'm sure it was. And then you turn around a few years later and you're old like me and you're old like, and it's, you're, it's, you're, it's, you're out. I spared some of you, by the way. I, I was going to use one of you as an example of someone older than me. I just stopped because I didn't want to be the oldest one in that analogy. But the reality is, as life goes quickly, what do you gain? It's, you've, you lost, if you lose your soul, you know, you, you've gained nothing. And it seems right here in verse 9, all these things I will give you. Question, wh- where do we ever see in the word of God that Satan is the possessor of all the kingdoms of the world? I've heard this. I've even read this in books. I've read this in, with really scholarly people, and they'll say that Satan uh, possessed the title deed to the earth. And I'm going, good gosh, show me one verse that says that. Well, it says he's the prince of the power of the air, the, the prince of the ruler of the world. And you insert in that that he's the owner of the earth? Well, what about Psalm 24? That says that our God in the heavens is the one that is the creator of the earth and all people, and that he's the one that owns all things. Did he just decide, well, I'm just going to go ahead and sign the title deed over to Satan? And I, I'm, I don't have any, I'm relinquishing control of my authority until eventually we figure out how to deal with Satan down here. Satan didn't own anything to give Jesus, he had nothing to give him. But, but, Air, empty words, empty promises. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It seems to me that the temptation for the a lust and a desire for the things of the world, uh, the, the, that heart that is restless, that is ever making idols of things on this little planet that we live on, that, that idolatry is akin to the worshiping. Of Satan. Now we're not doing it probably like purposefully, like man, I'm just going to worship Satan. No, but when we fall prey to the temptation that we can have all these things, that if we'll just abandon what we know to be true and we go this other direction, we can be the possessor of all these things. Nobody's probably going, yeah, and I'm doing that because I love Satan. Nobody's doing that. But what we're saying is we love the things of the world more than we love. God, and what did John say in 1 John 3? He who has the love of the world, the love of God does not abide in them. And so Satan is always offering up things. And the things, when we fall prey to the spirit of the age and this culture in which we live, and we are consumed with all these things, and we make it our life's goal and ambition to get all these things, in essence, what we're doing is we're worshiping the one who made the culture of the age in which we live, which is conceived of doctrines of demons. And then here beautifully, Jesus wields the sword of the Spirit yet again. Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, a wielding of the sword of the Spirit through the word of God. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only 
Jesus makes it very clear that his life is not going to be consist. It will not be will not consist of the things that he might could be the owner of, whether it's the kingdoms of the world. Jesus already knew that he was going to be the possessor of the kingdoms of this world. Satan was giving him a shortcut, but it was a lie. There was no shortcut to this. He was just trying to get Jesus, being to tempt Jesus in this in the similar fashions that we are tempted. Yet Jesus was tempted without sin. We need to have the mind of the Spirit of God in us, which comes how? It comes through the Word of God. Where's my verse right here? This verse right here, Psalm 119.11. I'm going to make a big plug here for Scripture memory. Why? So that whenever we get to this point in our life, we can say, it is written. And when are we going to get to this point in this life? Today! If you think you're going to make it out today without temptations of this culture in which we live that's trying to make you discontented with everything you have and to lust for things that you don't have and to desire for things and to spend money you don't have to get the things that you wish you had if you think you're going to make it out today you're wrong you're not so when you get to this point today you need to you need i'm going to make a plug here for scripture memory your word i've treasured in my heart i've mem- i've practiced scripture memory why that i might not sin against god Jesus said, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Be gone, Satan. Now, this is Jesus. Go, Satan. And Satan had no other choice but to go. Again, what's it going to profit you if you gain even the whole world, which we know we can't, but just the little world that we think we would like to have, but it costs you your soul, you're going to have gained nothing and lost everything. And then in verse 11, in wrapping this section up, we see the the victory of Christ. And it says, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began ministering to him. In God's timing, in God's perfect way, under God's providence, according to God's decreative will, he will meet all of your needs in glory in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that, church? Therein is life. Therein is the words of life. Let's continue to taste and see that God is good. Amen? And let me just say this one more time. If you're here this morning and you know not Christ as Savior and Lord, and you feel that tugging of the heart, this Lord's day, come and talk with me. I'll be right down here. I'll be out back. Don't leave without us talking. I want to introduce you to the glorious King of Heaven, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.